Yesterday, I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today, I am wise, so I am changing myself. By Rumi. Hello, I'm Matthew Sloan, warmly welcoming you to another episode of Sun Gems Podcast. We will discuss GFP methods on how to create happy, intentional classroom or home environments for little humans. It is partly in jest I have labeled this method the GFP method. I would like to share that Barbara's method of teaching little humans is to intentionally create a safe, creative environment where the individual's intrinsic needs and goals are supported in harmony with the needs and goals of the group. Once again, I'm joined by the amazing ambassador, expert, and creator of the GFP method, Barbara. Hello, Barbara, how are you? Hello, Matthew. Oh, Matthew, I'm very happy to hear you and do yet another episode. It's so good to hear you too. In today's podcast, we will discuss transitions, dealing with change, which has been such a challenge during these last few months, and Barbara's masterful, magical techniques of changing the energy and atmosphere of the classroom. I'll share a couple of incidents that show how Barbara's changing the energy in a situation helped with my approach to working with children, both small and large. So pin back your ears, breathe deeply. Oh my God. It makes me smile. It's perfect, Matthew. So pin back your ears, breathe deeply, relax those shoulders, and put a rock in the basket for listening to today's episode. Barbara, transitions are something we can all have trouble navigating, and they can often be challenging time in the classroom or home. How, as a teacher and parent, do you deal effectively with transitions? Oh, Matthew, that's a very, very big question. And transitions, meaning change, surprises, happen all day long, really, with all of us, to all of us, as we live and work. Now, with children, I found that one way to effectively begin dealing with this giant subject is to think of first thing in the morning, because waking up and what happens next, often the mood and the feeling of that continues. As it begins, it may just continue, which can be wonderful or quite terrible. <laughs> and after having so many children arrive at school through the years in every environment, crying or angry or sad, feeling harassed, out of breath because they hurried and they forgot this and that. What do you do about that? One thing I eventually created, the simplest little idea of a chart that I would ask children, what do you do when you first wake up? What do you find yourself thinking when you first wake up? Surprisingly, these questions may not be questions that a child has asked previously, naturally they may not also be what a parent is thinking about. What I'm asking is to step back from one's experience, 
long enough and deeply enough with enough curiosity to really think about it. What happens when I wake up? How do I get out of, what is the expression, the wrong side of the bed, any of that? So I would ask the children, when I first get up, I go to the bathroom and then I brush my teeth. I go, I race downstairs and I play a computer game while a caretaker makes my breakfast, whatever it is. When do you get dressed? Where is your backpack for school? If everyone is at home, where are the materials you used yesterday? Are they in order? Now, that's a question. I mean, without judgment, one can think, oh, they're a mess. Well, (laughs) how can we organize our time in a way that makes things easier? That's the first and one of the biggest transitional questions I thought about a lot as I taught. The thing that you mentioned there that is very good to amplify, especially for teachers or an outsider talking to someone about transitions and what happens first thing in the morning is the non-judgment aspect of accepting many people have so many different lives and so many different ways of being. You have to be completely accepting of that. Is there anything you could share with us on your approach to being like that? Because sometimes, obviously, once you made that connection, you could find it a little shocking how some people yes. maybe are yes. first thing in the morning. Well, what really helped me the most is one set of parents long ago who I somehow or other knew quite well over time. They had three children. I was sitting with the mom and we were having one of our conferences we both loved. We were really clearly, honestly attempting to understand one another and communicate. I said something or other, I don't remember, and she looked at me with these big eyes and said, Barbara, I can't do any of that. I can't do any of that. That really helped me because I thought, I don't intend here to be talking to myself about something I know. I'm wanting to reach someone else and support what would be the next incremental step. What is possible? Question mark. Non-judgment is utterly essential. Of course, has to be somehow or other authentic. I lived a very big life. None of what I ever heard was shocking to me. My life experience was expansive enough and varied enough not to have that problem. I listened from then on. I would listen with as much energy and acceptance as I could and wonder what is possible. And then together, often just by saying to the person, well, I wonder what is possible. Something very small. Yeah. Of course, that engages the parent. They start thinking, oh boy, how did this start? What was, you know, what's going on? Why is it like this? What can we do? What am I willing to do? That is how it began, Matthew. 
could you give an example of obviously you could say oh you need to do this this and this like you need to have the backpack packed the lunch is packed this is ready that's ready and something that seems obvious to you but then what would be a small incremental step that was actually possible like a parent came back and said you know I can have the toothbrush with toothpaste on it. Something you would think would be easy for anyone. What was a small incremental step as a good, as an example to show people? You've answered the question yourself and you know it as well as I do. It's finding a small incremental step. Also, it's understanding there are actually no small steps. The tiniest step is actually a miracle and deserves great bravos. Let's put a rock in the basket. Yes. But that tiny step. Yes. And when one can do that, then we are not annoyed and frustrated by, oh, so she brushed her teeth this morning, big deal. Then there was a tantrum. By stepping back, we begin to understand the incremental nature of growth. We understand the flexibility that's necessary and the appreciation that's necessary of little small steps. I, as a teacher, would regard them as so important. Then, of course, the children regarded them and many families regarded them as very important. And that alone changed a lot of frustration and annoyance. The chart that you had from the moment they woke up, how far did you take that chart to? How many steps were in it? It was all about getting ready for the day. Okay. And in what order you did that? When did you eat breakfast? When do you brush your teeth? When do you get dressed? Did you lay out your clothes the night before? Do you know where your shoes are? It was really taking apart something an adult doesn't need to. It's exactly the same as you look at a child's room or you look at their desk and you say, clean it. Just clean that desk. (laughs) Clean it right now. What we often as adults don't understand is the child has no idea the order of the skills that are necessary for doing something that we automatically can do. And I found it out through experience. We would go through all of the things. First, what shall we do? We have to take everything out of the drawer. Everything. From then, little by little, step by step, a child could learn how to clean a drawer. That's a simple example of something often as adults we bring to the table without any understanding. What I love is you're giving a guideline and a setup to the parents or the teachers in those situations to break everything down into incremental steps. And then that gives a great outline for anyone. That is so true. And as we grow and become older, everything is more complicated. We have shorthands that we're not even aware of perhaps in the use of our language. Much communication falls down because I'm using words that we both know 
And yet I mean something completely differently <laughs> from what you mean. That takes us back to our talk on the use of language and how delicate really it is. Coming from an English background and living in America, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, the miscommunication about the use of language is incredible and you speak the same language. It has the same roots but the idioms and the way we use the language is different. You compound that with people that have come from other cultures, maybe where they have a first language and English is their second language. You really have to be careful with the use of language. So it's very good to be aware of that. It is so wonderful to be aware of it. And it's the kind of awareness that then needs to be kept alive moment to moment, day by day in a serious and light-hearted way. Behind everything we're talking about, a light heart, a light touch, humor is everything. Because all of these things are challenging. They're very, very serious, and that's a wonderful thing. And yet, humor and lightheartedness and a perspective that is bigger than just right now is very helpful. I have a very short little poem by Mary Oliver. It's about one's perspective. It's called, I Go Down to the Shore. I go down to the shore in the morning, and depending on the hour, the waves are rolling in or moving out, and I say, oh, I am miserable. What should I do? And the sea says in its lovely voice, excuse me. I have work to do. I love that. It made me laugh the first time I read it. Also, it's just so, yes, let's relax a little bit and look at this with a lighter sensibility. And from a much bigger, greater perspective yes. of the ocean and the huge, yes. the huge work the ocean has to do. And we're, <laughs> we're just a little pebble on the side of the ocean. Right. In a sense. So true. So beautiful. As a teacher or parent, the plans have been made for the day. They're great plans and we want to stick to them. But how does one deal with the constant challenges that come up, the issues, the dilemmas? What happens to the plan? Oh, Matthew, that is a fantastic question. We all, as adults, no matter what our work, let alone when we work with our own children or others, that presents itself, the plan, the plan. I love my plan, <laughs> and we're going to do it today. Yeah. And I have it all written down. I have it organized. It took me ages to learn <laughs> how to make the plan. And so <laughs> that's where the humor comes in. The three essentials really are flexibility, spontaneity, and consistency. It's very important to make a plan, to make several plans. But if one understands and can be flexible, that's helpful. If a person understands that there are always surprises really always that suddenly disrupt a moment I thought was organized perfectly. Well, it wasn't. How to do all of that at the same time is what 
making a plan and dealing with children is about. What I learned long, long ago is as a teacher, I had several plans. I never had one plan. As part of each activity, I had several alternatives because I understood if you only have one plan and it's disrupted, and there you are with a room full of high-level energetic children, what are you going to do? One needs to learn many things to do, and a lot of that depends, of course, on the awareness of what the child needs at the time. There's my plan and what I want to happen. There's an I in that. And then the school system and our educational standards, that can sit in harmony or opposition to a child's energy in the moment. Maybe that child needs to race around the room. Okay, I invented games for phonics and teaching of reading while children were racing around the room. I saw very clearly their need to race. All of that helps the consistency of the plan because a little break is needed and then one can perhaps go back to the plan. But I think it's important then to back way, way, way up and take a look at life, one's own life, the life of the children that are with you and realize there's no, quote, small window of opportunity for the child to learn anything. It's all windows, it's all open. And there used to be in school years ago, this archaic idea that if a child had not memorized the <laughs> multiplication tables in third grade, it was over, the windows oh. closed. Oh no, oh no. There's a real absurdity to that kind of thinking. Yes, it's all windows, it's all open, and if today doesn't work with a child and the child needs stories just read aloud and a lot of hugging, a lot of jumping around, wonderful, wonderful. That's good for the body, good for the mind, good for the heart. It will actually increase the relationship one has with a child, and then, yes, Let's think about the multiplication tables if that's what's on the agenda. And then have math games that can stimulate and help with learning math as much as doing something regimented like learning the tables, but having that in your back pocket as well, so to speak. So, that's is so yeah, that's so true, Matthew, because that is also part of what we were saying before, remembering how important and with great respect for each skill. I used to say, I said it a thousand times to families and to other colleagues, phonics is never boring to a young child. It is not boring because it ends in reading Proust, if that's your goal, and that's a great goal. It is a tool, a tremendous tool, that then the child becomes powerful when using, if I regard it 
as I'm going to end up reading great stories and plays and poetry, and I'm thrilled about it. All of a sudden, the incremental steps to get there are lovely. They're exciting, and they matter to me, so I do them. I've found children are the same way. I'll just throw this out there. You have a child. I hate reading. I hate reading. What would you say to help them open their eyes to the possibility? I would say, oh, and I'd probably hug the child, depending on our relationship, of course. And or maybe we'd rock a little bit in the rocker. And I would say, I understand. <laughs> I really, I really understand that. In understanding the release of the fear and the anger, because I would like to say I have never, ever met a human being, a little human, who did not want to learn to read. When a child says, I hate reading, there can be many, many reasons, but they are all about, this is too hard. Yeah. My experiences with this have made me doubt my own self. I'm stupid. I can't do it. All of that is what's actually going on. When it's taken apart and understood, that person, if taught in the way the child needs, which is all of the educational knowledge, and there's a lot of it now on varying problems with learning how to read, the child will learn. Then it belongs to them. And it's thrilling to do that. It's so powerful and happy. You also brought up in the energy of the children. They could be being very disruptive. How do you deal with that? Sometimes it's just one individual. Maybe it's a couple. But what are some ideas around dealing with that in a way that's good for the whole classroom? That's the hardest. That, yeah. is, that is the problem number one, number two, number 27, that every teacher faces. And often it's faced at home if there's more than one child. Yes. The thing is, oh, it's just, it's, there's no, if there were really one answer to that, <laughs> uh, we'd be a millionaire. Yes, we would. <laughs> we would. We'd have so much money. And every faculty I've ever been on all over the country, that always comes up. There's only these two, and they disrupt everyone else. How can one discover enough about the individual who is disrupting to make an incremental plan with usually several therapists on what to do with and for that child. At the same time, a huge amount of energy must and needs to go to the people that are the most capable, always. It's very sad, I think, to differentiate and rank everyone. The good feeling and the great ideas go toward one group or another, as opposed to how can all of these individuals who are so unique be reached? That is the question. And then it is unique to each individual. As I mentioned, therapists and teachers, 
all of those resources can be of great, great help. I remember that we'd also work as a team sometimes. If a child was particularly challenging, we might ask for them to take their work and then work in another environment where they could be in another classroom and they wouldn't have the same audience that they were receptive to them. And that would help them find a space to focus on their work. Can you talk to something yes, about yes, how that that's helps? Very... Like changing the distraction almost helps. Well, it does. It does. Changing the energy helps tremendously. I love collegiality. I really, I really love it. When that is possible, more is possible for the children, of course. Having meetings with other teachers on the grade level one is teaching or on other grade levels because children are uneven, of course, in what they love and their abilities. Someone could be a first grader and sit in on fifth grade math. What that takes, though, is the social, emotional environment of the school needs to have come together. Yeah, That's where our rules, Matthew, are so helpful. If rules like that can live through several years, then there's so much less misunderstanding. And with a child who's being upset for whatever reason, if that child has a relationship with another teacher over the student goes, it's wonderful. And you see there's a human learning in that that is terrific and very big. And it is that everybody here cares about me. Mm. Everybody sees me. Everybody notices me. It's a wonderful thing when it can be done. Another point you make is one child might need to do some exercises to channel that energy. Would you have them do that in the corner of the classroom or maybe go outside? You might be in the middle of a math lesson or a language arts lesson. You can just see that, like you were saying, they needed to run around. What would you do in that kind of situation? Often, I would have a tiny trampoline in a classroom, one of the small round ones. Yes. Because of the environment that is constantly being created from the very beginning, that's a huge amount of planning that never stops. Understanding that never stops, the children in the room would know someone needed to jump on the trampoline. Does that mean we all really need to, not want, but need to, so that we can then concentrate in another way? Children can learn that. Maybe they learn it faster than conforming adults do. If it can be in the room and everyone becomes aware of the different styles of learning, the different ways we are as people and accept one another, there's lots of disruption that changes because of that understanding. Everyone becomes more aware. Everyone learns that we concentrate not usually in complete silence. Many people concentrate while listening to all kinds of music, People are multitasking with concentration, but to learn how I can concentrate best, 
and then practice it and extend it so that then I'm better at concentration is another one of the things the children can learn how to do. And by mentioning it, by talking about it, by each person thinking, when do I concentrate best? That is the beginning of an excellent student. That's so good. Going back to the plans, how do you modify your plans and how do you give the children the learning you think they need and still attend to the disruption? Well, that's again the unanswerable questions and questions that <laughs> are always, and I think the great thing about that is to simply learn that that will always be a question. Living with questions, just like living with paradox, is essential, I think, to then have some humor and lighten up about all of it because, in a way, it's completely impossible. Yeah. It just is. <laughs> yeah. So, Matthew, now I forgot what you really asked me. How would you modify a plan and still give the children the learning you think they need and attending to the disruption or the challenges that you're facing? Well, you have to do many things at once. And that's where women often are the masters of multitasking. Feed the baby, clean the house, do your law work, take a graduate course, have a great meal on the table at night. It's impossible. Multitasking is a great skill to develop. The key, of course, is to develop it without tension. Yes. Because it's the tension in us as teachers or as parents, caretakers, that makes everything worse. And so in the middle of a cyclone, the middle of a tantrum, how do I remain calm? If I bring more scattered, upset energy, it's just going to magnify everything. The first and the deepest lesson, it's maybe irrational, is the children are never to blame, ever. It doesn't help to look at the children in the class and say, oh, they're driving me crazy. They're driving me crazy. I told them the rules in September. It's ridiculous. The energy in the room, I'm not to blame for it either at all, but I am responsible for it. The differentiation between responsibility and blame is a delicate and an important one. If I'm responsible, I can begin to laugh and I can begin to think, oh, wow, I have my work cut out for me. (laughs) What shall I do over here? What shall I do over there? I can support them the different kinds of learning, the different kinds of plans that need to happen all at once. And that is, of course, true at home because the children at home are often not the same. And people say, oh, how can that be? They're in the same family and this child is so different. Well, they are. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to understand our thoughts about it? And then how are we going to understand them? And what on earth shall we do? It's all good, Matthew, but it's a lot. It's finding their needs. Yes. Their needs are. 
Yes, you're so, so right. So they feel supported. I have a little something to share for you to reflect upon, a little anecdote from our past teaching together. In Good. my humble opinion, but my opinions are gospel and have to be believed. <laughs> I <laughs> you, agree. You are a master at changing the energy in a classroom or home environment with your magical ability to notice what's happening in the moment and providing an authentic observation or an alternative perspective that completely changes the energy in the room. An example that every teacher or parent could authentically fake it till they make it is the class is getting a little on the loud disruptive side. Barbara, or should I say her alter ego, Glinda the Good, comes to the center of the room, cocks her head at an angle, listening intently to something and says, children, can you hear that? The children look up with concentrated looks on their faces, intently focused on listening. During this moment, you can hear a pin drop. Silence, isn't that beautiful? Let's focus on the task at hand with that silent focus. No raised voice demanding everyone to be quiet. Such a beautiful way to point out the benefit and need for quiet. Barbara, how did you come up with techniques like that? Could you share some more from your experience? Oh, Matthew, I love that. <laughs> I love doing. I love doing that. I love doing that. It, it is so wonderful to acknowledge energy, to be aware of the situation, and to suggest something somehow or other that changes it. One of the big helps in that is a routine is a very wonderful thing. Then we're back to the plan because children harmonize with a routine. They become used to it. They know what's going to happen next. There's less anxiety. That supports being able to suddenly do what I just did then because <laughs> it's not as if the children didn't know there was a plan. They did. And if they have become accustomed to the routine in a wonderful, wonderful way, which means they have understood it, they have accepted it, understood it, and found that they can flourish with this routine. That's the discovery. When a child discovers something, that's the discovery in phonics. That's the discovery with suddenly doing 20 blackjacks. It's all in their learning about themselves, accepting the big routine, and then they will delight in the change of energy. We had simple things like every time I clap three times, oh, yes. they would clap three times. Every time I would use that. Traditionally, teachers often turn off the lights, and that is a sudden signal for a change, for getting up out of one's seat, standing in a confident stance, and then shaking one's hands and arms. That's physical. Suddenly playing a game of Simon Says. The rule was no one loses. The rule is you keep playing. 
often I would make that game very physical. Clap your hands, take your left hand, place it on your right shoulder, shake your head, run in place. It's always helpful to move. Then going right back to say an art project, you might think that sounds improbable, very difficult. But if children have as part of their routine long conversations about the materials, about art that came before, what they will create. They know that routine. They are not going to be able to pick up a brush until more understanding and thoughtfulness has happened. There's the fast movement, and then there's the mental and heartfelt understanding. So that's, that's it, Matthew we would use one of those singing bowls or a, oh, a, yes. a bell well, yes. to take a moment of quiet and breathe. That like a, a chime. A, a chime. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm forgetting, yes. The key with all of it, well, I shouldn't really say that. It's all equally important. <laughs> with the breath, uh, breathing in, breathing out, sitting, if everyone in the room is capable of it, sitting with a straight spine, placing one's hands gently on the thighs, breathing in and out, just learning to do that with never saying the word meditation, with never saying even close your eyes, the beginnings of becoming aware of our breath and its giant impact on how we feel. And that is something we would always do. In implementing these things is you wouldn't do it like as an authority figure. You would do it no. as someone who was playing with the children, like the three claps. That can start off as a game. <laughs> like, let's play yes. this game. I clap, you yes. clap. Bringing the lightheartedness and the humor. All of these ideas come from a sense of playfulness that yes. children tune into so easily. They love oh. to play. They and do, so, and Matthew, and you were a master of that. <laughs> you could come into any classroom and just your presence with the big energy you have, you could do anything with it from reciting a poem, reading a story, getting them all excited. It's a marvelous thing. I had a great mental teacher. Let's, <laughs> the, the, you showed me the environment to do it. You just brought it out. But I have another example to share. I was on the playground duty with the middle school teacher. Some of the girls in his class were very upset and arguing about something. He was in a dilemma as to how he should approach the situation. Barbara was breezing past, completely aware of everything happening and the middle school teacher's dilemma. She came to a standstill next to the group of girls in her Glinda the Good way and exclaimed, Oh my, Hannah, look at your beautiful shoes. All the girls looked down at Hannah's shoes, distracted by the beautiful shoes. There was a moment of calm and Barbara calmly talked to the girls and initiated conflict resolution with them, de-escalating the situation and helping them come to a resolution. Barbara, where did you come up with a technique like that? And how are you able to interweave that artful distraction with the art of conflict resolution? 
Oh, Matthew, that is a great, great thing. You've mentioned, <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I love it. It, it makes me happy to think of it. <laughs> the truth is, when I was at Roland Hall, my favorite school, still thriving in Salt Lake City, there was a librarian. She was an iconic figure at the school. By the time I arrived there, children would come into her office or into the library or we'd be on the playground and they would with animation and sometimes upset they would talk and talk to her and she would say the silliest things they would be totally satisfied i thought what is going on another mentor teacher of mine at the poughkeepsie day school could do that too I marveled at it, and I watched. I have always loved being a student more than a teacher. I really learn because, of course, you can't always do that. There is no diffusing certain things with a distraction. That's the judgment call. The thousand times during a day, one decides which thing to do or say. Those distractions are a miracle. However, one needs to be very patient learning when to use them. They are light as air. They can never be heavy-handed or, well, they can, and you'll just watch, and they will not work at all. Yes, there were two great teachers I learned that from in two different places. You're being completely opposite of what's happening, lighthearted, yes. sweet, caring. You're bringing the opposite to that instant, and it's almost like a shock. It takes them out of fight or flight mode. They're like, huh? What was that? It's, yes. Oh. Yes. And Matthew, that's the great example of the star of American justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That is what she knew how to do on a scale few human beings ever know because she was the architect for the changes for women to have equal rights and pay. It's an endless, endless important career, but she speaks very clearly about being receptive, being a great listener who she learned from, the kind of energy that she felt had the potential to persuade people. It was calm. It was kind. It was brilliant, of course. There is little example of that kind of caring and sensitivity in the leaders of our world. She had school children come to her office in the Supreme Court every week and have them ask her questions. Did you always want to be a judge? She would talk and listen and talk. It's always inspiring to me when I see an example of something remarkable, justice is just a delicious idea. And she embodied that. There are many, many, many ways to use power. It's not given, it's taken. Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
Her mother taught her, you be independent, you study hard. It's amazing to be able, of course, to do it is another thing. And yet to admire people who can, to me, is a very, very happy thing. That's a very good place to finish. That is beautiful. I do too, Matthew. I really do. Well, there we have it. We've intentionally (laughs) come to the end of another wonderful discussion with insights galore from your resident GFP, Barbara. Join me in putting a rock in the basket for Barbara, you the listener, and for me for coming to the end of another excellent episode. Materials are available on our website, sungems.live, to support you in the practices and methods we've discussed. We encourage you to send in your questions or insights to us at one sungems at gmail.com. That's numeral one, S-U-N-G-E-M-S at gmail.com. We look forward to reflecting with you. Thank you for listening again and have a wonderful week, wonderful month, a wonderful life. It's so wonderful. It's time to say (laughs) goodbye. Goodbye.